You're listening to Oxfam India's Responsible Biz, where the conversation is about business, human rights, and the people at the center of it all. Hello, I'm Tri Radhakrishnan, and welcome to episode two of Responsible Biz. In our previous episode, we spoke to Justine Nolan on modern slavery, the origin of the term as it has come to be, and the new legislations around it, such as those in the UK and Australia, to put an end to it. If you haven't heard it yet, I strongly recommend that you do, because it really sets up the context for this episode on global value chains. To understand it better, with me today is Dave Nathan. Dave is a research advisor at Society for Labor and Development and visiting professor at the Institute for Human Development in Delhi. He is also the co-editor of the Cambridge University Press series on development trajectories in global value chains and has authored books on labor and value chains. Welcome to the show, Dave. Thank you. Dave, my first question to you for today's show to kind of kickstart the discussion is what is global value chain or commonly known as GVCs? What global value chains refers to is the what we call the splintering of production. Production is no longer carried out in an integrated firm where everything happens from raw materials coming in at one end to the finished product coming out at the other end. Rather, you have a outsourcing of many tasks. For instance, like you know, you may have a lead. Uh, you have a lead firm, which is say a garment firm, a brand, or a large retailer, which does the design and makes the specifications. The manufacturer is then outsourced to some other firm, which may be in another country also, and usually is in another country, so as to utilize differences in the cost of labor. And therefore, you get the offshoring of a large amount of the area, a part of production. So this is what we mean by global value chain. And as it is, you know, it is independent firms interacting to produce one product. So, for instance, your smartphone or even any phone, uh, it may have. If, if say, if it's an Apple phone, then it's designed in the U.S. and it. But however, it's assembled in China. But components come from Japan or Korea or Singapore and many other countries. So, and then finally, the marketing and the branding is done by the by Apple. So you have on the one side you have the design and the, as a pre-production task. And then you have the production task, which is mainly done in Asia. And then you have the post-production tasks, which are the branding and the marketing. And of course, the, the point of the value chain is that most of the value actually is captured by those who do the design and the branding and the marketing, while a very small portion goes to those who do the manufacturing because the brands are an oligopoly. There are very few brands. How many brands are there that make that makes smartphones. There are very few companies that make smartphones. There's Apple, there's Samsung, and there's Huawei, and there are two or three other Chinese companies. That's all there are. So they are an oligopoly. They they operate in an oligopoly market where they can set certain prices in, of their products. They also are an oligopoly in the input market because there are very few of buyers for the inputs. Mm. How, you know because the inputs are the assembled uh, form. So. There's only these six or seven buyers, that's all. So there's a double oligopoly that's involved, which means that as a result of this, most of the large portion of the value within the value chain is actually captured by the brands or the lead firms, and a small part comes to the manufacturers. That briefly is what we mean by a global value chain. The phrase global value chains 
is generally understood in the context of logistics, but is now increasingly coming up when talking about human rights, and especially from the point of view of business and human rights. Why is that so? Yeah, the first point is that the lead firms, who are the ones responsible, who, as we say, govern the value chain, and then also are able to capture a large part of the revenue or the value within the value chain, are not directly responsible for, say, conditions in the supplier firms. They contract them. These are independent firms. These are not, unlike in FDI, or foreign direct investment, the brands do not invest in the suppliers. Apple does not invest money in its suppliers. They are independent firms. So at one level, they would argue that, look, we are not responsible for their labor conditions. But as it has now developed over time, that those who are benefiting out of a uh, business relationships are the ones, those who benefit more out of it, are more responsible for what happens. And as we in India, we have this notion of a principal employer. If you employ, if a company employs contract labor, then the company that employs the contractor to employ the labor as contract labor is finally responsible for the conditions under which the contract labor is employed. Similarly, the lead firm, initially they used to argue that, look, these are not, these are independent firms. We are not responsible for how they do their business. But this did not hold. And over time, they've had to accept responsibility. So therefore, there's been, as a result of this, there has been a lot of exposures of the nature of human rights violations in the value chain. Now, why does that come up? Because it is the business strategy of the brands or the lead firms to have the lowest cost possible. And therefore, they actually used to not just turn a blind eye, but their business practices even force certain labor violations by the suppliers. For instance, by the brands will only cost labor on the basis of minimum wage. Now, minimum wage, as argued by the Asia Floor Wage Alliance or by others in India and in Asia, is about, say, 35 to 45 percent of what we may call a living wage. So therefore, by paying, costing labor on a minimum wage and not a living wage, they're forcing the suppliers also to do the same. That is, they do not allow them to pay. If they did pay, they would be, they would suffer a loss. So they're not able to pay living wages because the brands only cost on the base labor on the basis of the minimum wage prevailing in a country. That's why we find that every now and then there are always issues with regard to the human rights violations by brands, not directly, but in their supply chains. And the question of bringing responsibility within the supply chain becomes a very important political issue, not only nationally, but even internationally. So you're saying that the cost squeeze that happens, it has sort of a cascading effect that the big brands squeeze upon their suppliers and then the suppliers squeeze upon the workers because they're the easiest targets. Yeah, because they need to minimize their cost. So therefore, you have even things like the utilization of child labor. So because that is very, very low cost. So but then that comes because so therefore, we have to recognize that these practices, labor practices, are in fact, part of the business strategy of the lead firm, knowing very well that this is happening, and allowing it to happen and building their cost on that basis also. So in fact, these costings are somewhere factored in. 
Yes, exactly. Because they do take them into account when they make that. I mean, they bargain very hard. They bargain on every paisa, yeah. not just leave alone a dollar. They bargain on every cent in the dollar. So they bargain very hard and they reduce your, you know, they take uh, what's called a full costing from the suppliers. Apple does that. Hmm. When you supply a component to Apple, you have to specify every item that have cost into that item. And they will reduce that everything by 1% here, 2% there. So they squeeze you so much. And then, and since there's competition with the suppliers, so the suppliers try to get the order. You know, they won't even get the order. I mean, they'll talk to the suppliers in India and say, okay, this is your price, but we're getting it for five cents less from Bangladesh. Can you match that? Otherwise, we won't give you the order. So therefore, they squeeze them and push down prices in a manner that they have to manage with these violations of labor rights all along the chain. You mentioned India. From an Indian context, what is the nature of these violations? You know, which are the industries and sectors which are probably most affected by, you know, the violations that one sees in global value chains? Well, the sectors which are most affected by the violations are those that are the most labor intensive. The reason being that labor there is very weak, since it's very easy to replace one laborer by another whether it is garments or shoe manufacture, it does not, doesn't take more than a couple of days to learn to do the work, the tasks that you have to perform over there. So if labor is easily replaceable, then it's, uh, it has very little bargaining power and therefore the wages and other conditions of work go down to the minimum that can be possible. So therefore, there is that what we call the race to the bottom. Of, you know. Now, what we need to look at is that what are the main violations? Okay, I think we should not take up too much in the terms of violations, because when we talk of human rights, I mean, not every violation is in that sense as urgent as the other. So we should take those which are most urgent. And for that, I would restrict the discussion to what the ILO calls the core labor standards. Now, these core labor standards are supposed to be met by every country, irrespective of the level of development. They do not depend upon the level of development. So, for instance, living wages obviously depends on the level of development. A living wage in India would be much lower than, say, in China, because in China there are certain kinds of expenditures, expenses, family expenses, which have become part of their system. Or a living wage in India would be lower than in Europe or America, because there you need a car, you can't exist, have a reasonable human existence without a cut. So therefore, the minimum labor standards which should be met, which is what the ILO calls the core labor standards, one of them is the absence of child labor. Now, that is something that's very prevalent in India. It is much less than earlier because there have been factors that have reduced the supply of child labor, like uh, more children going to school, increased adult wages, particularly in agriculture, and also through schemes like Narega, which have you know provided the rural employment guarantee for uh, adult uh, laborers. So that has reduced the supply of labor. There have also been campaigns and which have exposures, which have reduced the ability of the brands to allow the utilization of child labor. So that now you should go to any garment factory, you will sign, see a sign board there saying children, uh, no one under 18 allowed, because they don't want any children within their premises because it can easily be captured by some media mm -hmm. or by a brand representative coming along to inspect for their audits. But this has pushed, it has reduced it, but it has also pushed whatever child labor remains into home-based work. So there is child labor in home-based work. Wherever, wherever work is outsourced to the home, 
like say hand embroidery often is, mm -hmm. or finishing and uh, stitching of buttons sometimes is. So that's where you find child labor existing. The second factor is that the point in the core labor standards is the lack that there should not be gender discrimination. Now, there clearly is gender discrimination. For instance, in, if you go to a garment factory, you'll hardly find a woman beyond the age of 35. Mm. So they work, and they, why, do they, why do they not exist beyond the age of 35? Because their bodies are worn out and the high quotas of work, and they cannot ma maintain that pace of work, so the factories get rid of them and get in younger cohorts of workers all the time. This is a clear human rights violation because anyone should have a reasonable working life until say 50, 55, but these women are forced to leave at 35 and take up other odd jobs. They can't work in the factories anymore. Then there's the question of forced labor. There is a lot of forced labor, not only in the form of bonded labor, which is sometimes there in part of the value chains, like say in cotton manufacturing, in cotton processing, there may be that, or in uh, weaving cloth, there may be fabric, there may be uh, bonded labor, mm. but there's also forced labor in the sense of that you're forced to do overtime. You cannot refuse overtime. If you refuse it, you're likely to lose your job. And plus there's the compulsion of trying to earn enough, but the main thing is you're likely to lose your job. So there is a lot of forced labor in it. There are also the question of violation of trade union rights, which is one of the core labor standards, the right to association. Uh, the factory owners do not allow that, and they often take action against workers who try to form unions. Uh, but So these are some of the main ones. But I would add one more, which is not there in the code labor standards, but which I think which, uh, which SLD has been looking at and which we think is important, the question of living wages. As I mentioned, that living wage is that which is needed for a reasonable human existence. Nothing exorbitant, nothing much, but just simply enough food and nutrition and for the children to go to school and for the housework to be done, for women's unpaid labor to be taken care of in a sense, and reasonable house to live in. Now in India, that would come to something like 22, 23,000 rupees right now. But the minimum wage is around nine to 10,000 rupees. So it is much below that. So this is also a clear violation of a human right. When we think of human rights as the right to a reasonable human existence, then it is being violated. These, I would think, are some of the major violations of human rights in the value chains in India. Dave, you mentioned the sectors where labor violations are most prevalent are the labor intensive sectors. Which are these? I mean, you mentioned about garment and textile. Are there any other that comes to mind? Food processing. That's another one, which is uh, like, say, you know, processing cashew. It's very hard labor, very difficult labor, and a lot of bonded labor in that, a lot of exploitation in that. Food processing is another big area. Well, electronics doesn't quite fit into that. Though electronic assembly, which is there, is largely quite labor intensive. But the industry as a whole, you see, the point is the labor intensity goes along with a low educational requirement, that the knowledge required is not of a very complex type, and therefore a barely literate person can do that work. In fact, you don't even need literacy. I remember asking one factory owner in Bangladesh, why did they want workers who are literate? He said, otherwise they won't have to sit in and stand in one place. He said, those who are not going to school don't have the discipline of being in one place. They just 
move around and move around. They can't stay like that. So I didn't realize that's what school teaches us, how to sit in one place for eight hours or seven hours a day, and that you need to be a factory worker. So it's not literacy so much as that. So the knowledge is easily acquired, so it is easily violated. You know, therefore, the exploitation can be high. In electronics work, the knowledge is a little higher requirement. You usually want somebody who's done high school. So even if you're in, assem in assembly, you need a certain amount of attention. You need the ability to look at instructions and to follow instructions as they change, which is a little higher knowledge that of the the garment worker. So you don't find the same level of uh, exploitation in say, I've not looked at electronics factory, but the few I've looked at, they are somewhat better off, though their intensity of work is very high. Their, their assembly lines move very fast. And you can have that also destroying the body of a worker very quickly. We mentioned the sectors. My next question obviously is, who are the most vulnerable people? If it's factories and if it's food processing, we mentioned cashews and perhaps tea also comes to mind. Uh, very labor-intensive, literally back-breaking work. Who are the people who are, I wouldn't say naturally gravitated towards or rather pulled or sucked into these kinds of jobs? These are the barely literate or the poorly educated because since they cannot move into higher paying jobs or, or which requires some amount of education. I mean, most engineering factories nowadays want a minimum of a school. In fact, they want plus something, 10 plus something. They want you to have done a diploma of some kind, an ITI or something. Uh, an engineering factory won't take for less than that. So you can, the only option for those who are not so well educated is to go into this for women also who are below, you know, secondary pass, who have not passed their secondary school. This is the option uh, for the Adivasis, who are the indigenous peoples, who work in the, in the tea gardens. There's no other option because they're, they're a kind of, uh, you know, they're a, a confined labor force. I don't know the right term to use for that because they can't move out. They are stuck in that, uh, they've been stuck in that occupation for generations and they can't move out. So therefore they are very highly, now in the, in the, Tea plantations, you have yet another factor of exploitation, and that is minimum wages. Even their minimum wages are very low. The argument of the tea owned plantation owners in the 1950s, which has still remained in the plantation, Tea Plantation Act, is that in a tea plantation, usually the husband and wife both work. Therefore, they argued that you should you do not have to pay for, you know, in India. You, the minimum wage is calculated on the basis of what's called three consumption units. Uh, man being, well, in the usual masculine manner, a man is one consumption unit, the woman is, the wife is, a woman is 0.8 of a consumption unit, and children are 0.6, two children are 0.6 each, so that comes to three. Mm -hmm. But in the tea gardens, it is calculated on the basis of 1.5 consumption units per worker. So their wages are almost half of what they are elsewhere. So that is about the worst violation you can think of. So these are some of the worst areas. Listen to the kind of human rights violations that take place, and especially the sectors it's most prevalent in. It appears that India is a big part of global value chains. Not so big. Not so big? For instance, India's garment exports are lower than those of Bangladesh and Vietnam. They've been falling. They've fallen from $17 million billion to $15 billion, while Bangladesh and Vietnam have gone up to $25 billion and more. And how has that happened? Because the very poor quality of work within the garment factories. You think that cheap labor is what we need, 
And our government also thinks that making labor cheaper is what we need to attract uh, investment, but that's not true. They want efficient labor. They want labor that can produce good quality work output on time. India is notorious for not producing on time. As you can understand, the Indian habit of not being on time is, is not just a matter of uh, between personal relations and between people meeting, but it happens in the factories also. They're so badly organized. I mean, most of them, large numbers of them, that India is actually losing share in the world market to Vietnam and Bangladesh, which are much more efficient producers. It's not that they're lower in cost, but is that they, they are better organized and they produce on time and goods of the quality required. So India, there's a lot of resistance, in fact, to being part of value chains. Indian businesses don't want that system. They think that, uh, I mean, there's nothing wrong in that trying to be the brand. But the point is you can't be the brand and sell. Can you sell? I mean, we have one or two brands in India which may have a, uh, have a global presence. Tata's is one, Mahindra and Mahindra is another. But any other brand can you think of of India which can carry its name in the global market? No. So you, at least in the beginning, learn to sell to a brand. You learn how to do quality production. And then you can make your own brand over time, which is what China has done. But that India is not even doing that first step and they're falling behind. From what we have discussed so far, it is quite apparent that global value chains are indeed a multi-stakeholder issue. It involves companies, brands, governments, civil society organizations, trade unions, and others. How do you see the role of each of these stakeholders in addressing the issue of human rights violations in global value chains? Well, the, the first in addressing them, of course, is the role of trade unions and other such organizations or workers. Now, the employers don't want trade unions. The government also doesn't want trade unions. Or they want only their brand of trade union, which is uh, their political party. So, but unions of workers are important in being able to become a countervailing force to be able to improve labor standards. Unions have always been critical in improving labor standards. That is the first point. So unions need to play that role. Secondly, the government itself, I mean, they have to see that uh, not to weaken labor legislation and its implementation, which is what they're doing very rapidly and very fast under the misguided idea that making the ease of doing business with cheap labor is what we need. And it's not working. We're not getting that investment. We're not getting the FDI, which we thought we would get with all of this ease of doing. I mean, we've gone up 50 point positions in the ease of doing business, but we are still no big difference in the FDI coming in or even our uh, position in global value chains has not really improved. The suppliers also are very important because again, it's finally they are they are the direct employers, and their strategy is that of cheapening labor even more. So either you can have a technology. When we looked at garment uh, factories, the SLD did this research output, which is coming out, which will come out in the book, uh, in the, hopefully in the next year or so. That. We found two sets of factories. One is those that you know responded to the fall in margins and in late times with technology and management improvements, and they did better. The other one is those who utilize, you know, uh, responded to the fall in margins and late times by having more and more of sweated labor, more overtime, more contract labor, and they did badly. So the point is there is a difference between different, there are different strategies. And those who do better require more regular workers. They cannot afford to have their labor leaving the next day because they need their skills. So they need to retain them. So their labor standards become better. 
because of that, because of their own productivity and profitability requirements. Of course, they don't get a higher margin because the oligopolies are able to take away the excess, but they get more orders. They're able to grow, they're able to become bigger. So the volume of profit grows up, if not the profit scale rate. Scale rather than... Yeah, the scale goes up rather than the rate. So that is the point that suppliers also have to themselves come to these understandings and think that there is a co-determination of labor conditions and the performance of a firm. Good labor conditions along with, go along with good performance. Bad labor conditions and bad firm performance go together. But isn't it also something about short-term profits and long-term gains there is a always a long term view longer term view which is that of uh, investing in technology but that is the point that uh, if you are in business the point is to also do that well as a business person so to do better you have to do well to do i mean to earn more you have to do better you have to do well you have to do well in terms of labor conditions and management systems also you would be amazed at how bad some of the management systems are in these factories I mean, I have seen some factories where, you know, a room full of uh, 100 workers, uh, tailors, sitting idle because the fabric had not been cut. So a simple thing like, you know, managing your internal value chain, supply chain, so that each department feeds into the other and you don't have lapses of time, which, you know, may make up add to your cost of production. And so those workers are perhaps made to work overtime. Just to make up for the day's work, yeah. While they've been sitting idle for hours. I was amazed to see that actually sitting idle, but they have to sit at their table. That sounds like school. <laughs> yeah, so there's a role for all of these players, whether it is government, suppliers, trade unions. And even civil society and other organizations, I mean, to come out in support of workers and to raise these issues as being human rights issues. For instance, this absolute scandal that, you know, that they are forced to leave the factory at around the age of 35 is something that's not well known. And I hope we will be able to make it better known. And I mean, we go there and we see we don't realize that we're seeing something different, that we're seeing only young work, young women working. We don't see older women. Even older men don't much exist in that. They're also only below 45. Women below 35, men below 45. So there's even a violation of men's rights over there. But so these things have to be understood by people other than those directly impacted by it, by you and I, people like us who are not in that way impacted by such things. But it's for us to take up these issues and to take them forward. Thank you, Dave, for decoding the complexities around global value chains or GVCs, a buzzword in the ever-strengthening neoliberal discourses and the leitmotif of rising global inequality. In India, we are seeing it in the form of changing diluted labor codes and the ease of doing business index, where one facilitates the other. But the question of labor and human rights in global value chains is here to stay. Thanks again, Dave, for agreeing to speak on the show. Well, thanks. Thanks to you, Tree, for it's been a pleasure talking about discussing these issues. Thanks. If you wish to learn more about some of the topics discussed on this podcast, such as the ILO's core labor standards and conventions and national laws on labor and decent work, please visit our website. You can also read and download Oxfam India's more recent reports and discussion papers on tea and sugar supply chains in India to learn more about the nature of human rights violations in global value chains. If you like listening to our show, 
and please like it, subscribe to it, and share it. Thank you once again. This is your host, Sri Radhakrishnan, signing off until next time. This podcast was produced with the financial support of the European Union. Its contents are the sole responsibility of Oxfam India and do not necessarily reflect the views of the European Union. To know more about responsible business conduct, visit www.responsiblebiz.org. You can also follow us on Twitter at bizresponsible.